Welcome to Studio Berlin, our current affairs show here on 104.1 FM. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. On July 1st, Germany will take over the presidency of the Council of the European Union. That means for the next six months, Germany will set the tone and help shape the legislative agenda in what will be a very critical time for the bloc's 27 member states. Wir übernehmen diese Verantwortung in einer Zeit, in der die Europäische Union der größten Herausforderung ihrer Geschichte gegenübersteht. That is Chancellor Angela Merkel speaking recently in the German Parliament, the Bundestag, about how assuming this responsibility now is especially significant, as she says the pandemic is the greatest challenge the EU has ever faced. So, for the next half hour, we are digging deeper into what's at stake and what we might expect from this presidency. One production note before we get started, I am recording back here at our studio in Steglitz, but our guests will be joining us via phone. With us now is Andreas Kluth, a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. Hi, Andreas. Hi, Sylvia. And also with us is Christian Odendahl. He is a chief economist at the Center for European Reform and based here in Berlin. Hi, Christian, and welcome. Hi. First of all, Christian, let's get a sense of the scope here of, of this position. How powerful is it? So the position of the council presidency is mostly the the job of the moderator. Now, you may say, well, the moderator is not that strong a role, but you as a radio moderator know you do set the agenda. You ask the questions, and in a political sphere, you also come up with compromise proposals and so forth. So for periods in which important negotiations happen, that role is quite crucial. And um, we have a couple of negotiations coming up. And we'll talk about some of those negotiations coming up. But first, Andreas, do you see this as a blessing or a curse for Germany that it's taking over this position at this point in time? I think it's a challenge or an opportunity. Uh, it could fail to take the opportunity, then it's a curse. During the pandemic, just the last few months, the whole agenda has changed. And I think everyone is now looking to the president of the council but everyone was looking at Germany, even before that, as the largest country, to get Europe back on track uh, economically and politically, because it was almost threatening to fall apart for a few dark weeks. And as Christian mentioned, the role of Germany in this presidency is to be the mediator. So does that also come at the sacrifice sometimes of its own positions? I mean, for the sake of the common good of all the member states? Yes. I mean, it's supposed to be an honest broker. And so success for the president, or that, that's the fear, is, is not measured in can you get your own interests through, but can you hold the 27 together, you know? Um, and Germany will do that conscientiously, and at the moment I think its interests overlap with that. I mean, they're the same. It would be against Germany's interests. If, and I think Merkel realized that when she, very recently, when there was a pretty stunning about turn in German policy with France, toward the recovery program and borrowing by the European Commission. Right. And this EU recovery fund that you mentioned, uh, this is a 500 billion euro proposal presented by Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Emmanuel Macron first back in May. And it's to help get the EU economy back on track from the pandemic. So, Christian, is, is this what Germany will be tackling first? So the uh, negotiations of the recovery fund will be the top priority because this is the, a crisis in which the European uh, Union came together to at least uh, agree on a proposal, not yet the entire details, 
of putting together a very big recovery fund of um, $750 billion. And who pays for what, under which conditions the money is dispersed, and so forth. That will be the top negotiation. And it will come together with a negotiation that people thought was supposed to be over by now, namely over the EU's budget over the coming seven years. I think if you had asked people two years ago, they would have said, well, this new negotiation surely is over by June 2020, because this is almost when the new budget needs to, needs to be rolled out. But here we are. We haven't even agreed on that budget. So those two um, negotiations combined will be the top and probably the only priority uh, because the seven-year budget is one of the most crucial moments of policy in, in, in the European Union. And what will be the biggest sticking points in this discussion about the budget? Well, the, the sticking point of the budget is who pays for what, uh, as in every budget. But this time it's a bit more complicated because Britain has left the European Union, and with Britain goes one of the big net contributors to this budget. Uh, And so the question is, how will this gap be filled? Will it be filled by higher contributions from countries such as Germany or the Netherlands, who are the other major net contributors? Or will it be filled by cutting expenditure, mostly on the Central and Eastern European and Southern European countries? And with the recovery fund, which is now under negotiation, the, the questions are relatively similar. There are a couple of countries, Austria, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, who are opposed to large transfers to the south, and Germany sort of sits in the middle. And as Andrea said, you know, Germany was, you know, sitting in the middle before, and now it even has the formal position of being the one sitting in the middle. Andreas, uh, you wrote in an opinion piece for Bloomberg at the end of April that the timing of this presidency for Germany is awkward. Uh, Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, and first of all, that particular um, piece was written before this, what I call the, the U-turn or the about, about face by Merkel right. with Macron. But there's been about a decade-old debate and among academics. It's called the hegemony debate uh, because some people say that Germany is really or should admit that it's the hegemon of, some, of the euro system, of the euro area, the common currency, in the same way that maybe the U.S. was the hegemon of the Bretton Woods era or Great Britain was the hegemon of the gold standard in the 19th century. And with that comes a responsibility to lead and to be a lender of last resort and to preserve the system even when it's against your own short-term interest. And until very recently, Germany just refused to play that role. And what's interesting to me, did that just change? Because Germany, the, the elite and Merkel herself, looked into the abyss, that's actually a phrase that Ursula von der Leyen, a German and the uh, European Commission president, used, you know, looking into the abyss. Did, did they, at some point in the crisis, I think some people thought the European Union, one way or another, could start unraveling, and Germany said, no, we must not allow that, so maybe Germany at long last became a leader. That's why this this is awkward timing. I mean, it it has nowhere to hide now, as council president and largest country and supposed hegemon, it, it has to show the other countries, even the, the, the frugal four that Christian mentioned, that this is really the, the way to go and other steps will have to follow. Let's listen to something else that Chancellor Angela Merkel said in that recent speech to the German parliament, which goes along with what you're saying. We have to admit that the pandemic has revealed how fragile the European project still is. The first reflexes, including our own, were rather national and not entirely European. So it's been said many times before that this pandemic has shown the cracks in our systems. 
Andreas, what cracks did it show in the EU? It, it has shown very many cracks in many areas, but I, just to, for the sake of simplicity, I think they have one common theme. It, the European Union, since the 1950s, when European integration started, it never really figured out, was it trying to become ultimately United States of Europe? It, was it ready to cede sovereignty, national sovereignty, to a European level and tackle problems uh, together? Or was it not? Was it still just a confederation of sovereign states? And that ambiguity, who's really sovereign? Is it the European Union or is it the nation? That's killing the EU. That's been killing it because it comes up again and again in every crisis, whether it's migration or the euro crisis, and now, of course, the pandemic. And, of course, as long as there's an ambiguity, the first instinct uh, in a pinch, imagine if there were a war or something, would, of course, be national. And I think that's the problem the EU at some point will have to resolve, or it'll gradually, at some point, it'll be in the next crisis, not this one, it'll start falling apart. Can I just quickly disagree on this? <laughs> what Andreas describes is completely correct, I think, but this is the tension that the EU was built to live with. So the, the way we created the EU and how we reformed the EU was always an awkward mix between national sovereignty and European sovereignty, and we tried to find a way to identify areas in which, you know, we should decide things on the European level and areas where we should decide on the national level. That conflict will always be there. Uh, and so I think Andres is right that we need to find a way to deal with this. But the decision is not either or, either become the European super states or um, give power back to the nation states, but to always reassess how we distribute uh, power between those two levels. And I think a pandemic is probably not the best test because the EU was set up as a consensus machine, a slow-moving consensus machine on the, on, on the bigger questions. And so the EU was never really built to deal with crises. And I think this is what we need to think about. Is there a way in which we share a bit more sovereignty at the European level to be more ready for crisis fighting? And I think this is where the recovery fund comes in. So that would be one of the positive steps, I think, coming out of this German presidency is to make this recovery fund work and to show that this is a sort of catastrophic insurance mechanism that we still don't have at the European level, but that we need to be able to fight crises. Let's talk about something else that felt like a crisis for a long time, which was Brexit. And of course, the UK's official departure from the EU on January 31st. Christian, we've heard out of the UK that officials there were happy that Germany would be taking over the presidency at this point in time. Why would that be? Well, the, the heated up negotiations for the next stage of this Brexit process, that this falls into the German presidency, was always seen from Britain as, uh, OK, there's, there's at least a big country in charge to make sure that this comes to a solution. So Germany will be a consensus builder, I'm sure. But it also depends a little on the UK moving its own red line. Something that's been in the news over the past couple of weeks was U.S. President Donald Trump's plan to pull about 9,500 U.S. troops stationed in Germany. He's been consistently critical of Germany. He says they don't spend enough on defense. Will this become a topic for Germany's presidency? No, because that's a German problem. And if you've, you've read some of my columns, you know I'm not no fan of Trump. And he is a bull in a china shop and a bully and everything. And this is... It, wrong in a thousand ways, this this announcement of troop withdrawal is just part of his campaign and he has no strategy. However, 
He's actually completely right. Germany has been a bad ally, spending too little and not being very helpful. But that's an entirely German problem, and the Germans know they have to get going on it, and they've actually started. I mean, they're spending more, but they have to spend even more. They're not going to mix that into this complicated uh, European mess in Brussels when they chair those meetings. So we know the way this presidency works is in trios. So Romania, Finland, and Croatia were the last trio to take over the presidency over 18 months. Croatia is now handing the baton off to Germany. The next trio comprises Germany, then Portugal, and Slovenia. Are these three nations in sync, um, Christian? Um, I think Germany and Portugal probably do not see eye to eye when it comes to how fiscal policy making in the Eurozone should look like. But I think that the countries, at least, particularly when it comes to the budget and the recovery fund negotiations, will now work together on, on finding a compromise so that there's continuity when Germany hands over to Portugal. I think, by the way, there's a, a sort of fortuitous, almost coincidental benefit to having these three countries, or because essentially you have the largest country that used to be stereotypically northern in its attitude towards a fiscal union, for instance, not becoming a transfer union, followed by a southern country that was in the euro crisis, a crisis country, and then followed by one of the eastern countries. And those are the rifts in the European Union, north, south, and east, west. And I think it's probably not a bad thing if these three can figure out a way to hand over to each other um, to bring uh, eastern, western, southern, northern countries together. I think that's, that's probably a good thing if they use it. My last question to both of you. After Germany's six months in this position, so in January 2021, if we can kind of fast forward to then when Germany will hand off the baton to Portugal, what do you think is Germany's idea of this has gone right to plan versus something that could go very, very wrong? I think if there is a compromise on the recovery fund and the budget by the end of this year, which preserves some of the ideas, namely that there are sizable transfers to the south in the um, in the recovery fund to make sure that there's a swift economic recovery and modernizing uh, the budgets, um, including rule of law provisions and so forth. That would be a big success if all that is finalized by the end of the year. And the cherry on top would be if there is a positive agreement with Britain on the, on the next phase of Brexit. So that would be the, the, the complete success. I think a failure would be if, if the recovery fund amounts to nothing, we just add more loans uh, onto the existing debt stocks of southern European countries. But I don't think that will happen because Germany and France have put too much political capital into, into, into this recovery fund already. I think beyond that, this is a big year for EU-China relations, which are very bad and probably going to get worse. And I think Germany will want to see at least the EU-27 stick together. And to Merkel personally, or it's also important, she's, she keeps bringing up Africa. She doesn't want to lose sight of that continent. That's important for the migration crisis, you know, a problem and, and many other things. Basically, this presidency will fail based on whether or not they get this European Recovery Fund through. All right, we will have to leave it there. Andreas Pluth is a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Christian Odendahl is a chief economist at the Center for European Reform. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the results of a recent study, how Germans see their country's role in the EU. Stay with us. 
I'm Marco Werman, host of The World. Our reporters and producers are following events in every time zone. Their contacts include doctors, epidemiologists, and public policy experts. Get the facts, be prepared, be informed. Listen to The World. Tuesday through Saturday at 9 a.m. on KCRW Berlin. Hey, you, you've been hearing and reading the news all day. So what are you getting out of it? Are you smarter, more informed, better prepared for your dinner party later tonight? Well, The Takeaway has you covered. We ask the tough questions, we hold lawmakers accountable, and if something just doesn't seem right, we ask, how did we get here? It's The Takeaway with me, Tanzina Vega. Tune in to The Takeaway weeknights at 6 on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. We've just gotten an idea of Germany's agenda as it prepares to take over the presidency of the Council of the European Union. That was the politics of it. Now let's get an idea of what the people think. Christina Putz joins me from the Heinrich Böll Foundation, which has close ties to Germany's Green Party. She is an EU consultant and senior program officer there. Hi, Christina. Hi. Your foundation recently released a study which examines how Germans value their country's relationship with the EU. So what was the main finding? Yes, one of the main findings was that a clear majority of Germans see more advantages than disadvantages in the German EU membership. And that that they are very clear in favor that um, Germany has to invest together with its EU partners more money in research, climate policy and social security. And the Germans give a clear mandate to use the German Council presidency to tackle the unresolved issues of climate, asylum and the rule of law. Germany is the EU's biggest contributor, providing around 31 billion euros of the budget, and that's expected to increase to 44 billion euros. So uh, accordingly, there's this concept of Germany being the Zahlmeister of Europe or the, the paymaster, the one funding the enterprise. So you call this a myth. Why is that? Yes, uh, we have two reasons. First, because the figures are not so clear cut. Of course, at the largest and economically strongest country, Germany makes the largest contribution to the EU budget. It is about 20%. However, other countries such as Sweden and the Netherlands pay more per capita, so per person, and more in relation to their economic power. But the most important argument is that the enormous economic benefits from the European internal market are many times greater than the contribution. Germany is the number one export powerhouse in the European Union. And the European Union pays off for Germany and in many aspects more than for the other member states. But the second reason is that the paymaster thesis is not only wrong in the cost-benefit calculation, but also dangerous for the political debate. It puts in the debate only the financially undesirably rather than the politically necessary. In this logic, German government has justified its European passivity of the last years by citing the German taxpayer who should not be burdened even more. But our survey shows this is not true because the government has the backing of the German electorate for an active role in the European Union. 
How many people um, did you uh, survey as part of this study? We asked 5,000 persons. So it is a representative survey. One interesting trend the study notes, um, after the European elections, Germans perceived being part of the EU as more of an advantage. So take us back to that time in 2019. Why was there this excitement coming off of those elections? 2019 was the year of Fridays for Future. So it raised awareness. There was a higher turnout at the European election because people wanted to have a say on how the European Union should go further in a more sustainable way. But the elections were also about more. They were about defending the European project against those radical forces opposed to the common growing together. Radical forces uh, such as? Such as nationalist forces that are not convinced in an European common ground. So you mentioned Fridays for Future was one of these catalysts to get uh, Germans and young Germans excited about the EU and, and working together. What are other catalysts? Yes, I think the most important catalyst is the ability to act. Now, it is important that we have jointly addressed the economic consequences of the pandemic, which will be immense. We are facing a major economic recession. So some countries will be more shaken than others, and they must be helped. Thank you, Christina, for joining me. Christina Putz is from the Heinrich Bull Foundation. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. So we just talked about a recent study looking at what Germans see as the positives and negatives of being part of the European Union. Our next guest, I'm guessing, definitely sees more positives. Her name is Lea Nitsch. She is the chair of the Junge Europäische Bewegung Berlin-Brandenburg, or the Young European Movement in Berlin and Brandenburg. And this has chapters all over Europe. Welcome, Lea. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm uh, glad to be on your show. Lea, tell us what your organization stands for. I mean, what do you do? So um, basically we are, as uh, you mentioned, a youth organization, and uh, we are also called the Young European Federalists, meaning um, we have a mainly political work as our, our goal, and we stand for uh, European integration, and uh, basically the, the ultimate idea is to uh, create a European state with a real European constitution, that works, for example, as uh, the state of Germany, which is also a federation. In addition to that, we have um, a lot of practical work that we do, uh, consisting of many projects. Um, here in Berlin, we uh, started the simulation of the European Parliament, meaning that uh, we invite about 200 students every year, and that takes place in the Abgeordnetenhaus here in Berlin, where the Parliament of Berlin meets, and we uh, try to reenact well, a resolution and uh, the process of lawmaking uh, within the parliament to bring Europe closer to students and uh, people all over Europe. Wow. And then you send it to the EU parliament and you're like, this is what you should be doing. Yes, exactly. That too. Well, we, we, we take into account what we do in all our, our projects when we send the resolutions that we then uh, uh, work on as a group. Yeah. So you're 20 years old. I mean, what first got you interested in this? I grew up between Germany and uh, France, so I'm European from the beginning on. And uh, I always thought that the European government as it exists now should be more close to the people in Europe. And um, then I met a friend here in Berlin. I'm studying politics in Berlin, so I met a friend that 
was in that organization and we did an exchange with our fellow section in Poland and um, there were a lot of interesting topics and conversations and I thought there is a a lot to do and uh, that's what I did. Earlier in the show, we heard Chancellor Merkel saying that Europe has revealed its fragility in regards to how countries responded to the pandemic and that it was it was firstly more on a national level. Do you have a vision of how Europe could have responded better to the crisis on more of a European level? So there, there's many points that did go well. For example, we took over here in, in Germany, we took over patients from uh, from different regions in, in Europe and stuff, but uh, there was never a, a plan of action, a joint plan of action from the commission, uh, not until very late into the crisis. And um, also the problem with the borders closing was uh, very huge because the whole economical um, circle got disrupted in a way that it affected different areas that could have been well saved from from that part. I think there should have been a strong action plan together. I mean, the different nations didn't even have a plan for themselves mostly, but the European part sort of got um, forgotten completely. So uh, that was the problem, I think. So we know that Germany will take over the presidency of the Council of the European Union on July 1st. Do you connect certain hopes with this presidency? I mean, we know a top priority will be the pandemic. From my perspective as a chair of the Junge Europäische Bewegung, I think that the most important thing is to actively involve people um, and young people, first and foremost, into the the process of the EU and um, so that we can bring the citizens closer together. There is, for example, the plan of um, the President of Commission Ursula von der Leyen of uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe. I don't know if you've heard uh, about that. Mm-hmm. There is still no real plan regarding that, and we think uh, it should have a main point in the Ratspräsidentschaft and the presidency that Germany will take over because um, we will be discussing the shape and the future of Europe, uh, which is uh, the most important part, I think. And I think we, in, in that, we also have to integrate right now topics such as, uh, well, racism and other forms of discrimination. We see right now are very, very important, and we need to critically um, assess the, the status quo that exists and that we have in Europe so that we can um, advocate uh, for like a more diverse Europe and more um, connected Europe. I'm curious when you talk with maybe parents or people from an older generation, do you feel that you get pushback from them on your ideas about Europe or are they accepting of your ideas and your vision? First, I have to I have to admit that I work in a very pro-European bubble, of course, as the work I do with my organization mostly gets um, heard by very pro-European people. So we have the big problem of uh, the IFD in, in Germany, which stands uh, very much against all pro-European ideas. And we encounter a lot of problems with, with the older generation. But on the other hand, my grandparents, for example, experienced uh, the Second World War and their first um, vacation was to France where like they had to go over border and it was, it was totally exciting and their parents didn't uh, approve of it and they're always very proactive regarding anything uh, in, in respect of European integration because they, they have seen how far we've come and so they, they've witnessed the process. Uh, in comparison to me, I mean, I've uh, witnessed mostly just peace in within Europe, which is which is great, and uh, they didn't. So that's um, something that I usually think of when, uh, when I think of the work we, we have to do and what we have done already. Thank you so much, Leah. I really appreciate your time today. 
Yeah, thank you as well. It was very nice to be on your show. Leonich is the chair of the Young European Movement in Berlin-Brandenburg. And that does it for us here on Studio Berlin. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at KCRW Berlin. And also remember to tune into Studio Berlin at the same time next week when we'll be digging into the rollout and reaction to the Corona Warn app, Germany's official COVID-19 contact tracing app. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Have a good week.